So let's launch right into it. Objection number one would sustained. have been something like this. <laughs> huh? I said objection sustained. No. <laughs> okay. Overruled. O- overruled. Whichever it is. All right. Let's have it. Um, okay. Let's just go on to number two then. No. No. <laughs> okay. Obje- objection number one would have gone like this. Well, hello, and welcome to another battle-tested episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Amen. Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Of course, we're with the Coming Home Network, and you can find us online at chnetwork.org. Hit the subscribe button and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also join us uh, in our online community at community.chnetwork.org. We have all kinds of great resources for people who are doing what Ken and I did, which is trying to figure out what sense to make of the things that we were reading in the early church that made us think, huh, um, early church looks kind of Catholic. I wonder if that's how things were meant to be. So that's the backdrop for our ongoing discussion about the Eucharist, which concludes today, Ken. Uh, Are you ready to wrap it all up? Yes, I think so. I hope so. I mean, there are going to be a million loose, uh, loose ends and threads hanging out, but we'll do our best. We will do our best. So uh, one of the things that we want to make sure we address today is some of the common objections to some of the things that we've raised in previous pieces of this series, because I know that as we've gone, we've been building a case sort of episode by episode, and there are a lot of people who are thinking, well, what about this? And what about that? And uh, what about the other thing? And we're going to tackle some of those today. Okay. Well, I want to uh, begin by summing up then. The title of this series has been Our Journey to the Eucharist. And I want to make clear, the goal of this series has not been to attempt to present some total theology, total complete theology of the, of the Eucharist. You know, there are big fat books that go into far more detail on so many things. For us, it was more uh, our desire to tell the story of how we came as uh, former Protestants to embrace the Catholic teaching on this issue. And today, as you said, um, we're going to wrap this up wrap up the story. And I want to do this by looking at a, a few basic objections that I would have raised to this series that you and I have produced when I was still a Baptist pastor. So let's launch right into it. Objection number one would sustained. have been something like this. <laughs> huh? I said objection sustained. No. <laughs> okay. Overruled. O- overruled. Whichever it is. All right. Let's have it. Um, okay. Let's just go on to number two then. No. No. <laughs> okay. Obje- objection number one would have gone like this. Okay. Matt and Ken, you guys have traipsed through the Old Testament and the New Testament, presenting a number of possible, maybe even plausible supports for the Catholic view of the Eucharist. But what you have not done is you have not presented a single passage of Holy Scripture that clearly teaches the Catholic view. Nothing that even comes close to saying the Eucharist is a sacrificial meal in which the body and blood of Christ become truly present. Okay, that's how that's an objection that I probably would have stated to this at the time. And we're going to go into this one in a little bit of detail because here's my basic answer. I think that this objection fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the New Testament documents 
and how they relate to the church, okay, the nature of the documents and how they related to the early church, I'll put it that way, although it continues. First, it this objection, it, it treats the New Testament writings as though they formed the sole basis for the church's faith and practice. Uh, in a way, as though the writings came first, you know, the, the apostles just sat down and wrote all the letters in the New Testament, and then the church came second and learned all of its doctrine from this little, you know, cache of writings, um, and that the early church uh, could know nothing except what had been exp spelled out explicitly in these New Testament documents, okay? You got it? Except this wasn't how it happened at all. Rather, what happened was that the churches learned their doctrine from the apostles who came to them, who evangelized them, who taught them, who ordained leadership in their churches, and they learned their doctrine years before there was anything like a collection of apostolic documents. Um, as the Father had sent the Son into the world to teach and form disciples, so the Son sent the apostles, his apostles, into the world, endowed with the Holy Spirit and given his authority to teach and to form disciples and to establish churches. Quoting Jesus, his words are, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And this is precisely what the apostles went out and did. They evangelized, they established churches, they taught those churches face-to-face, -face, orally, they taught those churches everything that they wanted them to know about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation, about the church, about baptism, the Eucharist, about life in Christ, about the moral life, all of it. Many of these churches never received a letter, never received a letter addressed to them from an apostle. In other words, the churches didn't learn their doctrine from the New Testament letters. That's the first point that I wish to make. That's a great point to make. And, you know, you mentioned these early churches being formed by the apostles themselves. <clears throat> I think formed is a good word uh, mm -hmm. to, to use here because forming is something that happens sort of over time. Uh, you know, Paul spent how long in Ephesus? A few years. Long and we get, what, six chapters in the letter to the Ephesians? It would be absurd for someone who just joined the Ephesian church maybe 10 years after Paul had taken off, found the letter to the Ephesians and said to the people, the elders there, hey, guys, we've been doing this all wrong. I'm reading this here in St. Paul, and he apparently wants us to do this. The elders would have said, no. <laughs> We were with them for about three years, dude. Where were you? Yeah. We know exactly what Paul wanted to yeah. happen because we yeah. spent tons and tons of time and were formed with him and by him. Uh, so again, we, we kind of have it backwards, as you say. There's There was a sense, at least for me, when I was in kind of the solar scripture mindset, that the New Testament church um, was reading a book that now I realize wasn't around yet. Uh, in fact, they were being yeah. formed by the apostles, not reading a book. Yeah, and what you're doing here, Matt, is you're, you're stating in another way um, the answer to this objection. Um, first of all, what I had just said basically was that it kind of treats the New Testament documents as though they came first, as though they were written first and they were just sitting there, and then the church learned all of its teaching from those documents, 
and the churches could know nothing except what had been explicitly stated in those documents. Well, the other way, or like the second part of my answer to this objection, that is the objection being made that we that you and I haven't turned up any explicit statement in the Bible that lays out the Catholic teaching, um, is that this assumes that the New Testament documents were written when they were written to comprehensively summarize Christian doctrine. And again, they weren't. Um, as we've commented, the apostles taught the churches they founded everything they wanted the churches to know face to face. And the letters that they later wrote to some churches, again, remembering that many churches never had a letter written to them, the letters that they wrote to some churches are what we, re what we refer to as occasional documents. They were written to deal with specific issues that had arisen in specific churches, specific problems maybe that needed to be solved, maybe specific ideas that needed reinforcement or needed to be clarified or something like that. And let me go to your illustration, the one that you brought up uh, using St. Paul. Paul, it turns out from the book of Acts, we learn he spent three years in Ephesus. In fact, he describes himself as three years in Ephesus teaching the Christians, quote, night and day with tears. So, okay, night and day with tears for three years. Paul taught them an awful lot. And as you mentioned, when he writes to them, finally, it's six slender pages, six thin pages. He spent 18 months in Corinth teaching, ordaining leadership again, face-to-face, -face, orally. And then later on, he wrote a couple of letters. In fact, it appears that he wrote three letters, one of them we don't have, to the church in Corinth, dealing again with specific issues, divisions in the church, sexual misconduct, you know, false apostles that had crept in, issues relating to marriage, issues relating to um, disunity in the, you know, in the sacred gatherings, abuses of the Eucharist, much more. Some were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead, all kinds of issues. But, but here's the point. While Paul's letters to the Corinthians certainly reflect his teaching accurately, they're inspired writings, and we're not doubting that. They reflect accurately his teaching. They weren't written to summarize Christian doctrine or everything that Paul had taught, and they didn't form the basis of the Corinthians' knowledge of Christian faith and practice. Any more than we can assume that St. Paul was kind of one of those one-hit wonders with the Ephesians when he's writing to them about the full armor of God. You're telling me he maybe, yeah. there's a chance he said that to the Corinthians too, but he did it orally instead of in writing? I mean, these yeah. you have to kind of understand that Paul is saying different things to different people at different yeah. times in, in letter form because he's addressing certain situations. But the body of Paul's teaching, I mean, you absorb a lot when you hang out with somebody for 18 months, night and day, and you hear them talk about something so important to them that they cry about it, mm -hmm. as Paul did. But, but your point is good. He's with the Corinthians for 18 months, and are we to think that they didn't know anything about the full armor of God until they later on found this letter that had been sent to the Ephesians? Yeah, you know, the, so much was taught to them, okay? And the basic idea is that the documents of the New Testament, they were not the basis um, of the teaching that these churches knew, and they weren't comprehensive summaries of that teaching. In fact, I think we can see in Paul's last letter to Timothy that Paul did not even think of his letters as being complete manuals of Christian teaching. 
And this is what I mean. Paul founded a lot of churches, and Paul wrote a number of letters. And yet, interestingly, when he prepares to leave this world, he doesn't say to Timothy, gather my letters, you know, collect the letters that I've written. And Found you the St. Paul Memorial Library. And, yeah, uh, and you will have a comprehensive... <laughs> you will have, have all my works. Yeah, a, a comprehensive manual of everything that I ever said. Gather my writings. Instead, what he says to Timothy is, Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men. So, you know, what he's got his mind on when he's about to leave this world is not this cache of writings that if Timothy can get them, if he can make a ton of copies, you know, staple them all together, then we'll have something. What Paul has on his mind is, Timothy, this pattern of sound words, the things you've heard me teach all these years we've been together, guard these things by the Holy Spirit and teach them to other faithful men who will be able to teach others who will be able to teach others. And so we see apostolic succession in its in, in its embryonic form right there. And John the same way. John the Apostle established a number of Christian communities. He taught them the faith. And he later writes three short letters, you know, beyond his gospel and his and the apocalypse, three short letters. And these are to deal with personal matters and to warn his spiritual children of the heresy of the Docetists, really, those who denied that Jesus had come into the flesh. That that's why he writes. He doesn't treat these letters as summaries, complete, you know, dossiers of, of everything that he believed. In fact, twice, as we've noted in our series on Sola Scriptura, twice in these three very short letters, John says, essentially, look, I have a lot more that I would love to share with you, but I don't want to use pen and ink. <laughs> I, I don't want to write it down. I, I'd much rather wait until I'm with you where we can speak face to face and our joy can be full. And I don't want to jump ahead too much, but it's also important to know the controversies which with which people were dealing. Uh, when yes. St. John says, you know, when when you and I are listening to uh, fire-breathing, you know, rapture preachers talk about the Antichrist, mm -hmm. they have remarkably few passages to go on in the scriptures. One of them is when St. John says, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is, an Antichrist. is Antichrist, when in fact— if we were just trying to look across our landscape today and say, well, what does that mean for today? Well, it, that's that's one question. But the question John's dealing with is that there's these docetists who believe that Jesus was a hologram, yes. and they're wrong, right? Yeah. To believe that Jesus is a hologram is to believe the antithesis of what Jesus actually is. Yeah, yes, yes. So, And I haven't read a book yet that talked about the, uh, an, you know, the speculated on who the Antichrist was who says, well, he's going to be a docetist. <laughs> yeah, that's in your docetist dossier you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know. Okay, does this mean that the writings of the apostles weren't inspired? Of course not. That's not what we're saying at all. They were inspired. Does this mean that their writings don't or didn't accurately reflect what they were teaching? And again, of, of course not. They're inspired writings. They reflect accurately what the apostles were teaching. But what it does mean is that their letters weren't written to summarize in a comprehensive way Christian doctrine, and they weren't written to form the basis of the church's faith and practice. All of the churches that were founded by the apostles during New Testament times, the basis of their faith and practice, what they knew and what they did, 
was far and away what the apostles had taught them, what they had learned from the apostles. And because of this, we shouldn't expect to find in the New Testament documents explicit statements of each and every aspect of Christian teaching. For example, uh, when we hear Jesus command at the Last Supper for the apostles to Mm -hmm. do this in remembrance of him, we shouldn't expect for every single New Testament epistle to have an instruction to each church as to how they should commemorate the Lord's Supper. We should, however, expect an explanation to the Corinthians who are getting it wrong. Yes, yes, yeah, good way to say it, good way to say it. Okay, and this leads us forward because what we have just discussed, this is precisely why it turns out that looking to the faith and practice of the early church becomes so important for giving us a fuller picture, a more rounded, more colorful picture of the positive faith that was received from the apostles. This makes sense when you think about it. This simply makes sense. And this happens to be precisely what the early church fathers themselves believed. And let me just read a few so that those watching and those listening can hear the words of the early church fathers, um, how, how they felt about this. Here's the great Saint Irenaeus writing around 180 AD. When therefore we have such proofs, it is not necessary to seek among others the truth, which can easily be obtained from the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone who wishes draws from her, that is the church, the drink of life. Irenaeus is saying that one can come to the church to obtain the truth, which is something I wouldn't have said really as a Protestant. I would have said, you come to the Bible to get the truth. And yet it is what St. Paul says to Timothy, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, yeah, go to yeah. the church. It's the pillar and foundation of faith. Yes, he does. He says the same thing. Okay, here's Tertullian writing around AD 200. Moreover, moreover, if there be anyone, any bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age so that they might seem to have been handed down by the apostles, that is their teaching, because they were from the time of the apostles, we can say to them, let them show the origins of their churches. Let them unroll the order of their bishops running down in succession from the beginning so that their first bishop shall have for author and predecessor some one of the apostles or of the apostolic men who continued steadfast with the apostles. Then let all the heresies offer their proof of how they deem themselves to be. FYI, this is also the criteria by which the New Testament canon was eventually established formally some yes. 200 years later. Yes. By, can we trace by, it back? Can we show, trace it back? And if so, show us how. Especially focusing on the oldest and most prominent prestigious churches. Okay, here's Origen writing around 225 AD. This is what he says. The teaching of the church has been handed down through the order of succession from the, from the apostles and remains in the churches even to the present time. Okay, the teaching of the apostles, it remains in the churches to the present time. That alone is to be believed as the truth, which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. And then finally, here's St. Vincent of Lorraine writing in the 5th century, and he's explaining in his work, the Commonitorium, exactly why the church's faith and tradition, the church's faith and tradition, what it believes, what it practices, are so important 
for distinguishing Orthodox Catholic teaching from the false interpretations of the heretics. And this is what St. Vincent says. But here someone perhaps will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with it the authority of the Church's interpretation? For this reason, because owing to the depth of Holy Scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way, another in another, so that it seems to be capable of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. Again, this is the 5th century. Yes. The canon has been established early in the 5th century. Yes. And the, the, the Sola Scriptura problem is already happening with St. Vincent of Florence. And the thing is, he is saying the canon is complete, and he is saying that the canon is sufficient, meaning everything that is there is there materially, either implicitly, explicitly. The problem is... The problem is interpretation. For Novation expounds it one way, Sibelius another, Donatus another, Arius, Eunomius, Macedonius another, Photinus, Apollinaris. He goes on and on and on with all these heresies. Nestorius another. Therefore, here's the punchline, it is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various errors that the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and the apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. This is why it becomes important then to look at what the early church believed. This is reasonable because as we've seen, they learned their faith from the apostles. They learned their practice from the apostles. What they wrote reflects accurately what they were teaching, but it wasn't the basis of it. And what they wrote D doesn't exist as comprehensive summaries of it either. Okay, and again, it is. It's, these are apostles beyond merely Paul and Peter and John, who yes. wrote. You know, they believe in the authority of Matthew and Bartholomew and others who handed this on, but did not write specific letters of instruction as to how to yes. run a church, like Timothy. Timothy's another or, or example. Or Titus. He didn't write anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this leads to objection number two, but we've covered the the, the largest one, really, I think, but these flow from it. Uh, objection number two, but, but Ken, Matt, there was no common teaching on the Eucharist in the early church. Christians were all over the map on this issue. Okay, this is one that I might have said, and this is one I hear all the time. When I was a Baptist, I might have said it. And I, but I would have said this, Matt, because I had never really read in any depth and with any sympathy the writings of the earliest centuries of Christian history. And once I took the time to absorb the mindset of these saints and bishops and uh, apologists and martyrs, it wasn't hard for me to see that there definitely existed in both the East and the West a basic common understanding of the Eucharist, and it was not, certainly not, what I believed when I was a Baptist. You read the Didache, you read St. Ignatius, St. Clement of Rome, you read St. Justin Martyr, you read Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, you read your way on down to Ambrose and Augustine, you read the first four, five, six, seven, eight centuries of the church, and whatever differences exist in the way people express themselves, the kind of language they use and whatnot. There is a common doctrine very clearly, and it can be summarized in the words of St. Justin Martyr, writing around 150 AD, who put it like this, 
for not as common bread or common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him. You catch that? The food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. In fact, you mentioned the Docetists a few minutes ago. Um, The only time that we read in the early church fathers, the only time that we read of anyone actually rejecting what Justin Martyr is saying here is when we find St. Ignatius of Antioch talking about the heretical sect of the Docetists again in his letter to the church at Smyrna, where he writes, some ignorantly deny him, not confessing that he truly had a body. Again, hologram is the word you use. The Docetists believe that Jesus just appeared to be a human being, that he appeared to suffer, that he appeared to have a body. Anyway, he says, not confessing that he truly had a body. These same ones, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which was offered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. And just to key in and reinforce what you were saying in uh, response to that first objection Mm -hmm. about uh, preserving and maintaining the arguments and doctrines and practices Mm -hmm. handed on by the apostles, Ignatius is fighting the Docetists, and he says, uh, they abstain from the Eucharist in prayer because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which was offered for our sins, and which the Father and his goodness raised up again. Mm If you follow the family tree, Ignatius, mentored by Polycarp, mentored by John, who said anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist. So where do you think Ignatius learned this stuff? That's right. Right? John was facing the Docetus. Right. Yeah. And it went right down here to Ignatius, and he's dealing with him as well. You're telling me you don't remember stuff that your grandpa taught? I mean, come on. This is is, Ignatius is not coming up with these arguments in in a vacuum, so— I'd have to be quite a prodigy because my grandpa's died when I was like one or two. But, uh. but, but in your case, yeah. Okay, but the bottom line is this. I mean, we can't produce here all of the historical evidence that we produced in other parts of this series. But reading the fathers, as well as the best of the early church historians, there is strong evidence of a common faith in the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal in which Christ was substantially present, which leads to objection number three. Okay, at this point, I might have said, you know, okay, okay, so the New Testament documents weren't written as comprehensive summaries, and so you don't expect explicit statements on everything. Okay, and and okay, maybe the early church did have a kind of common view of the Eucharist, but you Catholics have just blown this totally out of the water when you get this idea that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and that people ought to put the consecrated host in a little monstrance and kneel down and adore it and worship it, you guys have gone far beyond what can be established from early church history or from the scriptures. How do you answer that one, Matt? Well, a few different ways, and it's an objection that I've that I certainly raised on my way into the church, and that I yeah. I, I am commonly confronted with, um, and we've actually gotten some notes recently about this very question. 
and it has to do, I think, with us fundamentally misunderstanding why the church phrases things different ways in different eras. And it has to do with what is the what are the terms set out by the objectors at the time? And, and this is why I think that you highlighting the example of Ignatius versus the Docetists is so important. Mm-hmm. Je- Jesus is truly flesh and blood. He came here as flesh and blood, right? We're going to deal with him as being consubstantial with the Father about 150 years later at the Council of Nicaea. Right mm-hmm. now we're dealing with the Docetists. They don't believe he's really flesh and blood. So when we talk about the Eucharist, we're going to talk about it as the real flesh and blood. Later, yeah, that's going to be the emphasis. That's, that's going to be the, the emphasis, emphasis then in dealing at the time with the Docetists. Okay. Yeah. Later when we come to Trent uh, and the explosion of ideas about what Holy Communion means in the Reformation, we're going to make it clear that with consubstantial or consubstantiation out there and transubstantiation and the memorialism and a whole bunch of other things, mm-hmm. we really do believe body, blood, soul, and divinity, the whole package, the fourfold form, that this is what this is going on here, that Jesus Christ is truly present. So again, and this is, mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, the same thing happens uh, when at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Why would we come up with the word like Theotokos, God-bearer, unless there was some sort of debate about what mm-hmm. was in Mary's womb? What was she bearing? Was she the Christ-bearer or the God-bearer? So you have to understand that the church is answering the objections using the language of the objectors and the ideas of the objectors mm-hmm. to articulate herself. Yeah, and, so, at, and, and at the time of the Reformation, that's when you have a large number of people standing up and saying Christ is not present in the Eucharist at all. You know, And so that's when the church has to most strongly come down and say, no, we're talking about Christ being truly present. And that entails body, blood, soul, and divinity. Christ is there. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, so, this is... You know, it goes back to something we've said uh, over time about the development of doctrine, um, that it's mm-hmm. not as though some new doctrine was added. It's just as as it's challenged, you start to see the shape of it. Um, you know, just kind of, you know, I don't know how bad your NCAA bracket is, but you can't find out what a team is really made of until you see them face a real live challenge, right? It was always them. Right. They were right, always right, there. Right. right you know, right. They've, they've been the same team this whole time. It's just right. the challenge reveals something new about them that was always there, but we hadn't seen in that way before, so. Okay, great, thank you, thank you. Um, Okay, let's go to objection number four then. So what we're looking at in objection number three is just a basic understanding of the development of doctrine and how the church does respond in each era to the challenges that are coming and therefore it's the language that it uses changes. But objection number four is a biblical one again. But Matt, eating the flesh and blood the eating of flesh and blood was explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. And so if Jesus really was teaching what Catholics believe he was teaching when he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, unless you drink his blood, you have no life in you. And if the apostles had gone out teaching this as well, there would have been an absolute uproar among the Jews at the time, unbelieving Jews, but also among believing Jews. It would have what been- do you mean there what do you mean there would have been? <laughs> yeah, they would have been utterly scandalized. That's how... Except they I, I, actually I, were scandalized. Yeah, I know. I'm stating the objection. I'm stating the objection. Okay, and you're giving the punchline. Uh, yeah, they were. They were. That's the answer to it. They were scandalized. Remember how they responded in John chapter 6? 
this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I mean, where else do you find in the Bible someone hearing Jesus teaching and, and plugging their ears basically and saying, I can't take it. I cannot listen to this. Well, that makes sense because they had been taught that eating flesh and blood was forbidden, that you couldn't do that. And so when Jesus is saying and repeating, you must remember that you must chew on my flesh and drink my blood. You must gnaw on my flesh using that strong Greek word. When Jesus is saying this thing, these things, their response is, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And then remember how John tells us that quote, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Many of them threw in the towel. Many of them said, I can't listen to this. I can't take it. In fact, see you later. And they went back to Capernaum or Nazareth, wherever they had come from, and they didn't go away. Jesus even has to look at the 12 and, and ask them, will you also go away? And Peter basically, how does Peter respond? You know, well, but, but where? Yeah, where? <laughs> where would we go, right? You know, like, uh, yeah, Peter almost responds like, you know, you know, I'm thinking about it, but... I don't see any options. I don't see yeah. any alternative options. They've You're, grown to trust him that, you know, even if they don't understand what this means, they yeah. trust the person who's saying it. Yeah, you have the words of eternal life, Lord. And so even though what you're saying sounds insane. Okay, so the Jews were scandalized by what Jesus said and what the apostles taught. The believing Christians were scandalized. And so was the pagan world. They were scandalized as well. Around AD 170, Athenagoras, one of the earliest Christian apologists, wrote a book called A Plea for the Christians, which was written to answer charges that were being leveled against the early church at the time. Um, as you know, Christians were charged with atheism because they did not accept the, the Greek Roman pantheons. They were charged with uh, sexual misconduct, engaging in orgies because they... Because, because they loved they were, one another. Yeah, because they loved one another. And they were said to greet one another with a holy kiss. So that was proof of orgies as well. Um, but they were also charged with cannibalism. It was rumored at the time that in their secret meetings, the Christians would gather. In these gatherings, they would celebrate a sacred meal during which they would eat the flesh and drink the blood of a human being. And therefore, they were considered to be practicing cannibalism. In fact, Athenagoras says that the Christians were accused of celebrating what he calls Thyestean feasts, which is a reference to the story of Atreus in Greek mythology, where motivated by revenge against his brother, he kills the children of his brother Thyestes, and then without Thyestes knowing it, he serves um, his children to him for dinner. It's one of those wonderful uh, bedtime stories from Greek mythology. But you know, all of this to support the idea that they were being charged, the early Christians were being charged with cannibalism. But to the objection, the Israelites were forbidden to eat meat with the blood still in it for this reason, and it's repeated again and again, because the life was said to be in the blood. You cannot eat the flesh with the blood because in the blood is the life. Listen to Leviticus 17, verses 12, uh, 10 through 12. If any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of its life. 
And this is something that we you could write a book on, I think. But given this, isn't it interesting that the very reason that our Lord commands us to eat his flesh and drink his blood is so that we might have his life in us? Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. He knows exactly what he's saying, and he knows exactly the objection that is being raised uh, against him in that moment in John 6. Uh, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Uh, He says, you have no life in you if you don't drink my blood because of exactly what you just mentioned. They know that the life is in the blood. Um, Yeah, it's... it's, it's, uh, it's the more you read it and the more you reflect mm-hmm. and the deeper you go, the more you realize just how intentional Jesus is uh, with the way that he presents this argument. And yes, there, there are a couple books that have been written on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one that I would recommend to our listeners. I don't have it actually handy. I've been doing more show and tell these days. Uh, but Dr. Brant Petrie's book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, really gets into um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of the, the multiple layers of things that are going on in John 6 and going on. Uh, on Good Friday as well, uh, that really point to the reality of all this. So, so they're not allowed to eat the flesh with the blood of an animal because you would be taking its life into you. And yet you are now commanded to eat the flesh and blood of Jesus, the Son of God, precisely so that you might have his life in you. So the Eucharist isn't cannibalism. He wasn't commanding us to take his human flesh and blood and start gnawing on it or, or, or eating it. He's going to go into heaven first. So he's talking about his resurrected flesh and blood. It's a miracle that by a miracle, by some supernatural means, Christ is going to give us his flesh and blood as a means of infusing his own life into us, which puts a which, which if we really, I mean, if you really believe that, you'd want to go to daily mass. I mean, if you're going to receive the flesh and, I mean, if you're going to receive the life of Jesus being infused into you through the Eucharist, you want to do this all the time. And it's no wonder then that St. Ignatius referred to the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. And something for the... That, something that as a Baptist would sound insane, but go ahead. Yeah, well, but it also helps understa- helps you understand what's going on with like vampire lore, for example, I mean, what is a vampire but a corruption mm. of the idea of what it means to uh, drink someone's blood? And what are vampires most afraid of? The, the crucifix and the, cross. The, the Eucharist and holy water and stuff and, like that, because what they are is a very violation and inversion of yeah, what Jesus yeah. is asking us to do here. Wow. Yeah, it makes me uh, interested in, in 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 sussing out the origins of uh, of of the whole vampire conception. Oh, there's a lot there, and where it goes. There's from. a lot there, Ken. Okay, but we need to move toward wrapping this up. So, the basic doctrine of the Eucharist, then, it was the doctrine of Christianity in the first fifteen hundred years of Christian history. This is something that really has to be absorbed. This was the doctrine of Christianity for the first 1,500 years of its existence, with only a couple of hiccups here with Radbertus and Ratramnus in the 8th, 9th centuries and whatnot. And even at the time of the Reformation then, in the 16th century, even then, there was no agreement on this. While Luther rejected the sacrificial aspect of Catholic teaching on the Eucharist, 
He continued to insist on the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, understood in a slightly different way, but he continued to insist on that, where other Protestants and Protestant leaders and movements disagreed. In fact, in 1539, a number of Protestant leaders met at the castle of Marburg to attempt to hammer out a common Protestant confession. And a couple of years ago, I went on a pilgrimage trip with Steve Ray through Germany. He had invited me to come along to teach on the Reformation and on Luther and whatnot. And we visited the castle in Marburg. So this brings back, I mean, it's a crazy place, you know, but so this is where the early Protestant leaders met at the castle in Marburg. And their goal was to hammer out a common confession. And so as we close this series, I want you to listen to um, ecclesiastical historian Roland Bainton as he describes the situation that occurred there at the castle in Marburg. In his classic Luther biography, Here I Stand, quoting Bainton, Luther, with some misgivings, accepted an invitation to assemble with a group of German and Swiss theologians in Philip of Hesse's picturesque castle on a hillock overlooking the towers of Marburg. A notable company assembled. Luther and Melanchthon represented Saxony. Zwingli came from Zurich. Ocalympadius came from Basel. Bucer from Strasbourg, to name only the more outstanding. All earnestly desired a union. Zwingli rejoiced to look upon the faces of Luther and Melanchthon and declared with tears in his eyes that there were none with whom he would be more happy to be in accord. Luther likewise exhorted to unity. The discussion commenced inauspiciously, however, when Luther drew a circle with chalk upon the table and wrote within it the words, This is my body. There's the bold Luther for you. He just launches out, takes a piece of chalk, draws a circle. This is my body, which you know erupted the whole situation. In the end, no common confession was achieved that day in Marburg. Luther's enemies within the Reformation movement continued to attack him as the flesh eater. That's how they referred to him. He, he was the flesh eater because he believed in the body and blood of Christ being present in the Eucharist. For his part, though, Luther wrote home to his wife, Catherine von Bora, and said this, We are in one opinion on almost everything. At the Last Supper, however, they will not allow, I mean, they will allow Christ to be only spiritually present. So he's referring to the majority of the, um, of the Protestant leaders. He believed in the real presence of Christ. They didn't. And he says, we are in one opinion on almost everything. At the Last Supper, however, they will allow Christ to be only spiritually present. They referred to him as the flesh eater. This is how he concludes, writing to his wife. I suppose God has blinded them. <laughs> what do you think of that, Matt? <laughs> it sounds to me, Ken, that what happened at the Castle Marburg with Luther when he's speaking with Bucer and Zwingli and everybody else mm -hmm. is that he writes, this is my body, and circles it with chalk on the table. And Bucer and Zwingli and such murmured among themselves saying, how can this be? You know, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And many of them yeah. walked away from fellowship with Martin Luther on that yeah. day. Yeah, you mumbling know. flesh eater. And I'm sure that Luther turned to Melanchthon and said, well, you walk away too, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, or, maybe yet, Luther, or maybe Luther turned to Melanchthon and said, oh, I suppose God has blinded them. Yes. Um, but, you know, it goes to show you that, you know, Protestantism of the present day, uh, 
is is a very far cry than the Protestantism of uh, 1517, 1525, mm-hmm. uh, and the years following. And, you know, I know that my own assumptions in regard to uh, what the Lord's Supper is and how it should be commemorated uh, were sort of steeped in my own experience of it and how I saw it treated in my in my mm-hmm. contemporary circumstances. And there was no kind of sense in my own mind that it had ever been done any other way by serious Christians. And I think that that's, right. you know, kind of the hardest thing that, that there was for me to overcome is to have a deeper reverence for something that had never been anything more uh, to me in my mm-hmm. entire Christian experience. And so I understand that a lot of people who may have, they may be able to like intellectually accept some of this stuff, but it's hard for them on the personal level to mm-hmm. kind of sort of feel a sense that that this is what the church says it is. And so I just want to give a shout out to anybody who that's their struggle because that was mine. Yeah. Yeah. I knew all the arguments and I believed all the arguments, but I needed to have kind of a moment where I looked upon the altar as the host was elevated and said, you know, in my own heart, my Lord and my God, as Thomas said. So yeah. totally, yeah. Totally understand. Well, okay, I'll I'll sign off here. I think we've we've done the best we could over ten weeks to tell the story, the basic story of the process of thought that led us from where we were to um, being willing to embrace from the heart the Catholic teaching, which is also the Eastern Orthodox teaching, which was the teaching of the Church for fifteen hundred years. Um, and so I'll sign off with that, and we'll start up something new next week. Sounds like a lot of fun, Ken. I've really enjoyed this series on the Eucharist. We've also done series, by the way, on Sola Scriptura, on baptism, and some other stuff. I encourage you to go to chnetwork.org slash on the journey if you want to find all of our previous episodes. You can also, if you want to comment and join the conversation, I really encourage you, the best place to do that is inside our online community with the Coming Home Network, and that is community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I are actively involved in those discussions there And uh, we would love to see you. In the meantime, thank you so much for watching this series that we've done on the Eucharist. And we'll talk to you again next time around. Thank you, Matt. We'll talk to you later.